Okay, we're in a series. Are we ready to roll? Okay, we're ready to roll. We're in a series called Back to the Future, and uh, we're talking about the importance of dealing with things that happened in our past so that our future won't be tainted. And, you know, I, I don't, I'll do it, but I don't want to have to preach on this every year. You know, so in other words, the things I'm teaching you, you need to do these things on a regular basis. Don't wait until you have a year of luggage, a year of baggage, a year of negative things happening, and then you decide to let these things go. It's been on a regular basis. And for the past seven weeks, here's some things we talked about up here. Uh, condemnation, injur injuries, repentance, letting go, bitter or better, give God your past, forgive your enemies. These are things when you do all the time, okay? Not just when I preach on it and you think about all these things from the past. Every day we should let things go. And, and I have, a, and I've learned, and I'm not a, a perfect guy, but some things I've, I've gotten really good at in life. One thing I learned is before I go to bed, I let everything go that I couldn't control, everything go that somebody said about me or hurt my feelings, things that didn't work out my way. If I have my day planned and things didn't go that order, it's okay. I let it go. I don't bring it into the next day. I don't bring it in the next day. And so today, if you do these things, okay, we're starting to get to the end of our series. Today, if you do these things in part eight, I want to talk to you about this. The God who pays back. The God who pays back. If you're willing to forgive your enemies, if you're willing to let go of the past, if you're willing to, to repent whenever you've done something wrong and not have condemnation in your life, if you're willing to do these things, God wants to pay you back for everything negative that happened in your life. He wants to pay you back. 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 You do not have to live bitter. You don't have to live without. You don't have to live with disappointments. I promise when you trust God, he'll pay you back. Let me show you some scriptures. Zechariah 9, 12. Come as prisoners of hope and I will restore double. Everybody say double. Double, double what you lost. And repay or pay you back twice. For what you've suffered. Isaiah 61 7. For your shame, that's whenever you've done something wrong and then you've been exposed. You feel shame. For your shame, grief, and being mistreated, you shall have a twofold recompense. Everybody say twofold. twofold. And here's what God said about thieves in Exodus 20, 22, verse 1. A thief must pay back five times what he stole. Proverbs 6 30, a thief must pay back sevenfold. And here's what I want you to see God's plan to pay you back is never one to one. He never wants to bring you back to where you were before that thing happened. He always wants to bring you out better off. He never wants to make, if you lost a job, you know, for whatever reason, he doesn't want to give you a job with the same type atmosphere, the same boss, the same amount of money. He wants to put you in a place where you're making more money with a better boss, with a better atmosphere. If, um, if you have a wayward child, you know, your child's just not doing right, not serving God, don't pray for God to just save your child. Lord, just... Just save him and make him just one of those normal Christians. No, you need to pray. God set him on fire with an incredible passion for you. Turn him into a pastor, an evangelist, Lord. Give him a testimony that he shares all over the world. Don't bring him out normal. Bring him out better. And so many times when we go through negative things in life, we lose that faith that God's going to do more and he's going to bring us out with double, minimum of double. Now, here's what's amazing to me. Even if the thing that happened was your fault, this is how good God is. Even if what happened to you is your fault, it was your sin, your mistake, you're the reason. Even then, God says, if you repent, I'll bring you out better off than you were before you did that thing. Now, the problem with a lot of us is we think that all the negative things that happen is somebody else's fault. 
When people come to me and they say, um, you know, this bad business deal, man, I had this business partner and I was supposed to retire at 50, but now I'm not going to retire until 65 and this happened to me. Here's, I don't, I just, you know, I say, I love you and I'll pray for you. Here's what I want to say is this. Did you get in business with that person because God opened up the door or were you greedy and just wanted something, you know, did you pray and say, God, do you want me to be in business with this person? I realized they did you wrong. I realized they lied. They cheated, whatever they did. What was your part? If you can't repent for your part, how's God going to pay you back? Because if he does, you're going to make the same mistake again. Repentance means you've changed the way you think about it. If, um, if you're in a relationship, right, and the relationship just stole years of your life, hurt you incredibly, let me ask you this. Were you having sex before marriage? Did you pray and say, God, is this person the person you want me to be with? Or were you just longing to have somebody love you or, or, or treat you good for a little bit or whatever it was? What was your part? If you don't know your part, please don't ever come to me for help. You got to recognize, how can I help you if you won't recognize what you've done to get in the thing that caused the problem in your life? Now, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I'm going to show you one of my life scriptures, okay? This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, and because it's one of my favorites, I need everyone in here to pretend like it's one of your favorites too. Because it's like you tell somebody, man, that movie was incredible, you'll love it, and then they say, eh, it wasn't that good. Are you kidding me? Cocoon, it was a great movie. The old people, they got young again. I'm just kidding, that was from the 80s. Anyway, so this is one of my favorite scriptures ever, okay? So love it. Second, and, did, and I read this scripture every day for three years during my most darkest time of life. And this is what kind of got me out of it. Second Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, I'm glad, not that you were hurt, but that your sorrow led to repentance. It changed the way you think about things. You let the grief bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain, no loss. We never regret that kind of pain that drives us to God. But those who let distress drive them away from God, they're full of regrets. Now, isn't it wonderful? Because the pain, the stress, all the ways that has brought you closer to God. Here's what happened to you because you went through that mess. Now you're more alive. You're more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You're more reverent in the presence of God. You have more passion for life and for Jesus. You're more responsible. In other words, because these things, because the enemy hurt you and you forgave that person, it changed your heart. Because that horrible thing took place and you let it go and you trusted God, it made you more mature. Because you made that mistake, but you repented quickly, recognized your part, and got up and kept pressing toward God, now you're a better person. Because you, if you hadn't gone through these things, man, you'd still be late on your rent every month. But you found you got evicted, you had no place to live, and then you finally learned, man, I got to have more excellence and faithfulness, and it changed your life. One of your children started doing wrong, you almost had your kids taken away from you, and it took all of that for you to finally see what it meant to be a good godly parent. You went through that trash, you weren't serving God, you were on the waterway every Saturday, playing golf every Sunday, living your life, and something happened. You went through an accident, a divorce, all these problems, and now you're in church, and you're serving God. Because you went through the mess, God said, I'm bringing you out better off than you were before. This is my life scripture right here. So, since we're dealing with God repaying you, okay, all three points start with R-E today, because he's going to repay you. And here's how he does it. Point number one is this, he restores you. He restores you, and you have to believe for the restoration. You believe to be restored. Joel 2.22, I will restore to you the years. Everybody say years. years. This is really important, and I'll show you why. I'll restore to you the years that have been stolen and make up for every loss. This is amazing to me. God says this, I'm going to pay you back with time. 
Have you ever spent time in a hospital or time depressed or time wasted in a relationship? God said this, I'm going to pay you back time. The years, you're going to have good years in front of you. It's not going to be crappy years like before. No, because you recognize your part. You took responsibility. I'm going to pay you back time-wise. Now, when it comes to restoration, there's two different definitions for restoration. One is Webster's definition, which we're not going to be judged and live our life on Webster. The other one is God's restoration, what the Bible says about it. Here's the two differences right here. Webster says it brings back to the original condition. I already showed you that's not what God does. Here's the Bible's definition of restoration, to make better, to increase, to improve, to multiply, and to promote. God never brings you out the same. He always brings you out better off better off. So remember Job, we talked about him in our series, right? In Job chapter one, two through three, and remember these numbers, okay? Unless you went to Aner High School, but otherwise I want you to remember these numbers, okay? It says this, Job owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and was the wealthiest man in the East. Now listen real close, money does not make you immune to adversity. So if you think the answer to your problems is money, you are wrong. For some of y'all, you would have way more problems if you had more money, okay? The answer to your problems is God. And God will provide what you need to solve your problems. So seek God, not money. Job was rich, but he had a lot of problems. In nine months time, he went through this. He lost his health. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He lost his job. He lost everything he had, everything he had. He even, in fact, he lost all hope as well. In Job chapter 3, this is so funny, he cursed God, he cursed himself, he even cursed his own mama. Now, for you to say, all the problems I have are your fault. If you hadn't got pregnant with me, that's what Job's telling his mom. Because you gave birth to me, it's your fault I'm going through all this. Because you got in the backseat of that Cadillac in 1973, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> you shouldn't have gone to that drive-in movie. I wouldn't be here with all these problems today. So he's having all these problems. He blames his mama. After 42 chapters, which was nine months, Job finally started to believe that maybe God could take care of things for him in life. In Job 42, verse 6, he said this, Lord, you're all powerful. I repent. I repent. And, and, and if you study the book of Job, you'll discover that every problem that came his way was his fault because he was so full of pride. All he did was talk about how he's perfect, he's done nothing wrong, he's lived a perfect life, he's never disobeyed God, lie, 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 lie. Only Jesus can say that, nobody else can say that. And Job was so full of pride, so he repents for everything he said. Now, if you remembered the numbers I read to you earlier in Job chapter one, this is double, watch this. The Lord restored Job and made him twice as rich as he was before. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 donkeys. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. That's exactly what God wants to do for us. Whether the enemy came in and took something from you or it was by your own fault, something happened to you, either way, God wants to bring you out with twice as much. I am living living proof of restoration. I mean, I am living, breathing proof of how God restores. Um, and the thing about Job is every person that met Job after this day, after that nine months, when he, when he got, everyone who met him after Job chapter 42, nobody knew about what he went through before. Every person that met him thought, man, you are so blessed. You are so prosperous. You got this amazing family, an amazing job. You're wealthy, you're healthy. They think he was just, man, he, they thought he was like God's favorite. Nobody knew he went through hell before that. I believe in all of our lives, God wants to bring us to a place where when we meet new people in life, they have no idea what we've been through. No idea. You know, people even I meet now, they have no idea. And some of y'all do, but a lot of people, they don't have no idea 
that I went through everything Joe went through, lost my health, I was in the hospital for months, lost my family, job, my, everything. Lost my house, lost my dog. Uh, it was a country music song, you play it backwards, you get it all back, you know. But I lost it, and, and we, they have no idea, no idea what I've been through. Um, I read this true story about uh, this rich hotel builder in Las Vegas, his name is Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn's a multi-billionaire with a B, one of the richest men in the world, and he builds the sky rises and the big buildings, you know, in Las Vegas. He's an avid art collector, and he's collected art pieces from all over the world, history, you know. One of his favorite pieces he purchased in 2001, he bought it for um, $60 million. I know I'd love to have a, a, a Marvel painting of Spider-Man like that. And it was, a, it was a Picasso painting, Picasso $60 million painting. And it was his favorite, but he had a best friend who also loved the painting. It was his friend's you know, favorite painting of all time. So he finally, after several years of owning the Picasso, he agreed to sell that one painting to his friend for $139 million, because that's what it was appraised at then. Doesn't sound like a good friend price, by the way, but anyway, $139 million. She was gonna make a bunch of money, things were great, and uh, they worked it all out, the sale, they got the lawyers involved, the papers drawn up. The night before he was to sell that piece of art, that Picasso, uh, Steve had a dinner party there at his mansion, and he's showing people around his house, and he's showing them the different paintings, and he went over to the Picasso painting to show them this is the one I'm selling tomorrow. I bought it for 60 million, selling it for 139 million, but Steve has a very rare eye disease that causes a peripheral vision problem when he's walking around. He didn't realize how close he was to that $139 million painting. And when he turned to point to all his friends the painting, he was so close to it, his finger went right through the canvas of the original Picasso. That's what everybody else said too. The whole room, you could hear the gasp, you know. He turned and saw a two inch tear in that original painting. Um, do you know that that tear caused the price to drop down to $85 million, which resulted in a $54 million loss? Of course, his friend backed out of the buying. They didn't, he didn't want to purchase it anymore. It was a very, very sad time. So Steve called what they call an art surgeon. An art surgeon comes in, they take the painting, and they sew the individual fibers of the canvas back together. It takes several months. It's a very detailed thing to do. <clears throat> but of course, the whole world, all the art collectors around the world, heard what happened. So nobody wanted this painting anymore, right? It dropped down to $85 million. Nobody's gonna pay that. There was a tear in the painting. The funny thing is, even though it was very sad when it took place, is the story traveled around the world for the next six years. It became such an unusual story, such an unorthodox, such a crazy story that this famous billionaire poked a hole in an original Picasso painting. The story got so humorous, so popular, People started bidding crazy amounts of money on the painting that a hole got into it from the billionaire who couldn't see the right way. It became so popular, the painting ended up selling for $155 million, which was $16 million more than before he poked a hole in it. <laughs> I think that's what God wants to do with us. Even when you poke a hole in your destiny and you think, oh, I can't believe it. The whole world knows what happened. How could I have done something like this? God said, that's okay. When I bring you out, I'm gonna bring you out like you better than you was before you poked the hole in your destiny. The, the Israelites, they were being abused and mistreated and horrible things were happening. And God said in Exodus 6, five through eight, I've heard your cry. You know, I love the scripture because we know God hears our prayers. 
What I love about this is it means he hears us even when we cry. You know, you know how it is whenever you have a child that's hurting and it just breaks your heart as well. They can't even talk. They're so upset and they're just crying and your heart's broken. That's how God feels whenever we're suffering. And he says this, I'm going to punish your enemy. I like that. I'm going to save you. I love that. And I'm going to give you the promised land. I'll take it. I'll take it right now. In other words, Moses basically preached the same sermon that I'm preaching to you today. The very next scripture in verse 9 says this. They were too discouraged to believe. God said, listen, I'm going to bring you out better off. I'm going to take care of your enemies. I'm going to prosper you. And here's where they thought, man, I've just been through so much. If you knew what I've been through, I just don't have the faith anymore to believe that you can do something like this. They did not believe that God could restore and they missed out on their destiny. And, and some of you in this room, you're right in the middle of your past and your future. You're in the middle of prophecy and destiny, right? You hear the prophetic word of what God wants to do and your destiny depends on if you do what we've been talking about for the past seven weeks, let the past go. Forgive the people that did you wrong. Trust God. Don't live in condemnation. Get up and serve God regardless of what's happened to you in the past. Point number two is this. He wants to reward you. So he restores if you believe and he rewards because you've been faithful. Uh, Hebrews eleven six says he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So God wants to restore what's been stolen from you, right? But listen. When that thing was stolen from you, because you believe, now there's a reward. Uh, God wants to take care of your enemy, but because you forgave your enemy, now there's a reward. God wants to bless you, you know, even though you did the wrong thing, but because you repented, now there's a reward that goes along with it. God always wants to reward us. Um, in uh, in uh, 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah was sick and he was on his deathbed. He had shingles. He was dying from shingles. So the prophet Isaiah comes into the kingdom, and here's the prophecy that God gave him in 2 Kings 20, verse 1. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. That's not quite the fortune cookie he was hoping to get, you know, at P.F. Chang's, right? You ever had one of those fortune? I remember, this is horrible. I'll tell you anyway, but I remember um, like 25 years ago or whatever, I'm in high school, and um, I was at a Chinese restaurant with a bunch of friends. And, and someone opened up a fortune cookie, and I promise, the, I promise you the fortune cookie said, you need to lose weight. That's exactly what it And I thought, we're at a Chinese restaurant eating all these GMOs, and that's what you're going to tell me? Of course I need to. Anyway, it was funny. So that's not what he was hoping to get, right? Imagine coming to the night of prophecy, right, and our, our, the prophet that comes here and visits. Everyone's like, you're going to be blessed. Your future's good. You're going to die. You're not, you're not going to live. You're done. You're done. And so Hezekiah started to pray a prayer immediately in verse 3, and here's what he said. Remember, God... I served you faithfully with wholehearted devotion. Here's what he's saying. I didn't just come to church. I served my family and I joined that family. I didn't just, you know, put something in the offer and everything. I was a faithful tither. I needed money for other things, God, but I served you with my whole heart. God, when people offended me, I just let it go. I just trusted you to pay it back. For, for years, God, I was faithful serving you with my whole heart, not half my heart. Not just a quarter, but I served you faithfully. Before Isaiah could leave the building, God said to him in verse 5, Go back to Hezekiah and tell him, I heard your prayer. I'm going to heal you, deliver you from your enemy, and watch this. I'm going to add 15 years to your life. Not 15 cruddy years where you're in and out of the hospital, you know, and you don't have enough money for groceries. I'm going to give you good years. You're going to be in Myrtle Beach. You're going to play golf three times a week. 
I'm going to send you to solid rock. It's going to be the best time of your life. That's what I'm going to do to you. So Hezekiah said, well, God, this is amazing. You're going you're to add years. You're going to restore time. God, it just takes so much faith to believe you're going to do that. Give me a sign. Show me that you're going to do something like this for me. And God said, well, what do you want me to do? And Hezekiah thought, well, you know what? We're dealing with time. So to prove to me that you're going to add life, that you're going to add good years to my future, in verse 10, Hezekiah said, it's normal for the sun to go forward, but God, have it go backwards 10 degrees. He was saying, God, I believe you love me so much that you'll interrupt the solar system and the entire universe just to prove to me that you're going to reward me for my faithfulness all those years. In verse 11, Hezekiah watched as time went counterclockwise for five hours. If God can restore time, if he can stop the solar system and cause it to go backwards, God can restore all the things that have been stolen from you. The years you spent depressed, the years you spent sick, the years you spent in a wrong relationship. You say, well, why doesn't God do that for me now? Let me ask you this, are you faithful? Are you serving even when we don't thank you? Are you giving even though you want to buy that new boat? You know, are you forgiving people even though it really hurt you what they did to you? Are you being faithful in life? God's rewards always find the faithful. From Genesis to Revelation, from since time started until now, his rewards always find the faithful. You know, I told y'all a few months ago, and I hope that you enjoyed me telling, telling this, but you know, just recently God has opened up the windows of heaven um, like it says in Malachi 3, um, to our life and to our finances. Um, about two or three years ago, a house that was in my name for 20 years, it sold, and I got some of that money. And at the same time, my grandmother died and left all of us grandkids a pretty big inheritance. And so I thought, you know, we could, we could pay off our house, and that would be the end of it. And, we, you know, we'd be done with the money, and we live in a little house, you know, not here at Market Common, but on the other side of the bypass. We're going to pay off the house. I thought, well, let's invest the money so that the investment will not only pay the house payment, but give us something else in return. And uh, the investment's done absolutely amazing. I mean, phenomenal. We've been able to give more than we've ever given ever. Um, I mean, the, so my, my wife, a while back, we were in Walmart getting groceries, and she was about to pull some food off the shelf. She said, oh, can I buy this? I said, listen, honey, you are married to the sugar daddy of sugar daddies. <laughs> I am daddy Warbucks for the rest of our life. For the rest of our life, you never have to ask permission before you buy food at Walmart. You can buy any food you want at Walmart. That's how rich and loaded we are right now. We were at McDonald's in the drive-thru the other day, and the girl behind the, 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 the drive-thru, she was doing such a good job, and Micah pulls out a $50 bill and tips her. I said, we're not that rich. You're going to break me. We're stinking. I could have bought 10 Big Macs for that. What are you doing to me? But you know, when people, you know, people sometimes get upset if a pastor's doing well financially, I still make less than a plumber does, so don't get you know, too excited. But listen, when I've spent 20 years making under $1,000 with five children, seven people in a household, and we've tithed faithfully for 20 years, 20 years, we, all, we didn't go on vacations, we didn't buy you know, all these new things, never had a new car ever in 20 years. We always, if we do that, and people, people want to be blessed. Christians in America want a microwave blessing. I came to church this Sunday, so bless me this week. I want a reward now. Are you kidding me? Try 20 years of believing, 20 years of being faithful. And I know what it's like before I ever tithed. I remember being 20 years old, married, I have two kids, 
And I remember being in the Walmart, you know, in the Walmart line. And I don't know if this ever happened to you, but um, getting the groceries, you know, diapers and wipes and milk and eggs and the necessities, bread. And um, I remember at the end of the line, they, they added up. And the lady tells me how much. I'll never forget looking down and think, I don't have enough money. I can't pay it. And people are in line behind you. You got two kids in strollers. And you have to look at her and say, can you put back these diapers? Can you put, can you put this back? We just can't. This is before there was, you know, internet. And someone could, you could beg somebody for money. They could send you money. We didn't have that. A year after that, I started tithing at 21 years old. Um, I never made any more money, but yet we always made it. We were never in need, ever. There was never anything that we needed. It wasn't given 20 years, and now God opens up the windows of heaven, and we're going on vacation. My kids are blessed. We're able to give more than ever. God's rewards always find the faithful. Genesis 15:1 says, I'm your shield, your exceeding great rewarder. He loves to reward. And see, if he rewards some of us now and we're not faithful, we'll just lose it. If he, he knows when your heart is ready. He knows when you're at the point where this, well, you're not going after the money or the reward, but you're going after him. You're not going after the relationship or the person. You're going after him. Because when you know he's the provider of everything you need and want in life, you go after him because when he brings it to you, it's good stuff. When you go after it, it fails. And you'll never make it if you go after it. So a, a true story, back in 1924, this young American man was training for the Olympics. His, um, his specialty was whitewater canoeing, very unusual specialty. The games in the 20s uh, were going to be in Paris, France, and he was the heavy favorite for the gold medal. It was always his dream just to have a gold medal. He spent his whole life training for this. It just so happened that his wife got pregnant, and the week that she was going to deliver their first child was the exact same week that he was supposed to be in the Olympics over in Paris, France. Back in those days, you couldn't travel across the ocean in one day. It took several weeks. So he had to decide, am I going to go after the gold or am I going to go after my family? Am I going to put this dream first or am I going to put my family first? He told his coach, he told the whole world, I'm sorry, I can't compete. They were so upset with him. People all over America could not believe this guy was supposed to win us the gold. And just because his wife's having a baby, he's not going to be there. He was home for his child's birth and everything went great. The little boy grew up and he and his dad were the best of friends. It turns out that the son became also extremely gifted in the area of whitewater canoeing. They practiced together. They, they got better and better. In 1948, the son qualified for the Olympics in Helsinki, Finland. A few weeks later, the father received a telegraph that said this, Dear Dad, thanks for being there when I was born. I'm coming home 24 years later with your Olympic gold medal. The father got the Olympic gold medal, and now it meant way more to him because it came from his son. Man, that blessed my heart so much. I think that's how God is. We've missed opportunities. We did the wrong thing. Man, we should have poured into this person or poured into the church or our family or not pursued this. And now we finally realize we made these mistakes and God says, I still have a way to reward you better than what you originally wanted in life. Amen. Point number three is this. He wants to revive us. So we believe for restoration. We're faithful for the reward, and then we have to pray and ask God to bring revival to our life. Revival, that's whenever you've been through so much in life, your heart kind of stops beating. 
You kind of go through the motions. You're showing up for church, you know. You smile at work, but deep inside, you don't have your passion anymore. In Habakkuk 3.1, and if you actually study the Hebrew, which is our, the Old Testament, uh, this particular passage in Habakkuk chapter 3, it actually says that it was written to wild and crazy praise and worship music, which I thought was very unusual. But it says this, a prayer of Habakkuk, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of us. Revive means to regain life, to give new strength and energy. And we pray, Lord, revive us. Use us for you. Use us to build your kingdom, to help other people. Lord, give us a passion for you that we're so in love with you, we don't even desire these other things that have nothing to do with our destiny. Um, back in the 40s, this professor in England named Professor Orr, O-R-R, he taught theology at a university there in England, and he took his students on a field trip to see some of the historical theological sites around there. One place they went was the Epworth Rectory. It was the home and the study of the great John Wesley. You know, y'all know John Wesley is the one who started the Methodist movement. Other denominations, Church of God, Pentecostal, came out of that. Uh, his brother wrote all the famous hymns, you know. Uh, the whole world was touched by the life of John Wesley. And it's because he constantly prayed for revival to break out, not just in his own life, but that God would use him to help the lives of other people. God answered John Wesley's prayer request and the whole world and all the historical theological books are all affected by John Wesley. So the theological, the theology students, they visited the rectory. They went to the kitchen where John Wesley ate his food. They thought that was exciting. And they went to the study room where all of his most famous books and some of the actually most famous sermons in the world were written in that room by John Wesley. Then Professor Orr, he took the students upstairs to John Wesley's bedroom the most intimate quarters of the home. The students all filed in the bedroom around the bed, you know, shoulder to shoulder, trying to all squeeze in there. And one of the students noticed these two very well-worn patches on the floor on the far side of the bed. The students said to the professor, what are these two patches of carpet missing right here? Professor Orr said, well, those two patches were the actual place where every single morning, John Wesley would plant his knees right beside his bed and would pray so long and so hard for revival that his knees had actually imprinted themselves into the carpet fibers of the floor. The students just stood there for a moment. They took it all in, you know, just savoring every single second. They finally went downstairs. They got back in the bus, ready to go to the next location. Professor Orr stood at the bus and he counted all the students. He realized he was missing one of them. So he goes back inside, looks in the kitchen, can't find the student looks in the living room, the study. Finally, he goes upstairs to where the bedroom is. He could see through the crack of the door on the other side of the bed, this one student had planted his knees down into those well-worn patches in the floor. And he heard the student praying, saying this, do it again, Lord, do it again and send revival into my life, into my church and into my country. Do it again, Lord, and would you send revival through me? Professor Orr walked around the side of the bed. He put his hand on the shoulder of the student. He said, it's time to go. Rising from his knees, Billy Graham went and joined the rest of the students on the bus that day. And then a few years later, God did it again. And he sent revival through one man. I wonder what would happen if everybody in this room would pray for God to revive them in such a way that your heart beats so fast for him 
with such a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that he doesn't just send a few weeks of excitement to us, but he sends such a revival to this place that when you come in these doors, you cannot leave without having a deep and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Something that doesn't just change you, but it changes your children. It changes your spouse. It changes people in your work. All because you asked God to do what he's been wanting to do in your life ever since the day you were born. What would happen? Um, in John chapter 11, Mary and Martha, they sent word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus was sick. Now, Jesus loved Lazarus. He was friends with these people. But by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus was dead. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You're showing up late. You know, you, you showed up, but you showed up after I went through all this mess. Why weren't you here on time? It makes me feel like you don't love me. You know, you, you let me go through this, and then after I go through this mess, then you start to speak to me. Then you start to do things in my life. Why didn't you show up before this happened? Why didn't you do something in my life before we went through this tragedy? All these negative things would not have happened if you had been here when we asked you to come here. In verse 35, it says Jesus wept. It's the shortest scripture in the entire Bible. And, 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 and nobody knows exactly why he wept except for Jesus. The Bible does not tell us, but theologians all over the world have different ideas. I have about three different ideas. I'll give you one of them. I believe, because we knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why was he weeping? I think he was weeping because Mary and Martha were weeping. And there's so many times where my children have been in tears. And I know it's going to turn out okay, but it breaks my heart. And I'm in tears too, you know. Someone breaks up with them or someone bullies them at school or something. And it just, it just breaks your heart. You know they're going to be okay. I was the parent. <laughs> I, was the, I have five kids. I was the parent where when you take them to get their shots, you know, at the pediatrician, I'm crying more than my kids are crying. I'm like, do you have to give them a shot? You know, in fact, I'll tell you this. Um, when, um, when Zach was uh, maybe five or six years old, I was doing this CD, um, this recording at, a, at the Methodist Church in Myrtle Beach. And, um, and, and Zach wanted to be there and work with me. He was always with me with best of friends. And he was carrying this drum for me, carrying it, and he tripped, and his chin busted open, and I mean, blood was just pouring out. So I grab him, and I jump in my car. I don't even put him in his car seat. I hold him in my lap, and I drive to the hospital, you know, 90 miles an hour, blood's pouring out. I run into the emergency room. I demand they help my child. And I was so upset, they thought that I had abused my child. And so they brought in psychiatrists and policemen, and they're trying to handcuff me. I said, no. I said, I promise. He, he hurt his chin on a drum. And they get me away from him, and they ask him. He's like, a drum, a drum. You know, they're like, did you make him say that? No, I promise. You know, we did. And so when they got done doing all this stuff, he stopped bleeding. The doctor comes out, and he says to me, he says, now listen, now there's two different things we can do. Um, you know, because my son, if you know Zach, he's like a model. He's just a handsome you know, a perfect specimen of a man. He gets that from his father. And so it's hereditary. And so, but he does have one flaw. And I'll tell you what his flaw is, is uh, the doctor comes out and he says, you know, um, we can do this. We can sew him up some more. Um, it's going to be painful, but he will not have a mark on his chin. You'll never know it was there. He said, well, we can just leave it like it is and not put him through that little bit of pain. 
but he's going to have a mark. Leave the mark? I don't want to go through any more pain. So because I chose for them not to finish sewing him up, he has a mark under his chin <laughs> to this day. Here's the point. Psalms 56, 8. God collects all of our tears. He sees your pain. He sees your tears. So Jesus stopped crying. And in verse 38, he said this. Take away the stone. Martha said, but Lord, after all this time, it's going to stink. Jesus said, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Do you know that sometimes in life, before we get to the miracle, we have to get through the stinky stuff? You know, some, some miracles that you'll never see until you get through the stinky stuff in life. In fact, it's those of us in this room that have been through a whole lot of, and there's another word for stinky stuff, I'm not going to say it. We've been through a whole lot of it, and that's why we see great things in our life. Because we've been through the stinky stuff, you know. So he said, you know, she said, it's going to stink. What are we going to do? And in verse 43, Jesus called out, Lazarus, come forth. And in front of everybody there, Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Here's what I want you to understand. They were praying and praying and praying for a healing. And God said, I got something way better. I'm going to give you a resurrection. Would it be okay if some of the things you've been praying for, if God says, you know what? I could do that. But I got something better for you. If you'll just trust me and believe and get through some stinky stuff, you might be wanting a healing. I got a resurrection. I'm going to revive life back to that person. Pray for God to use you for him and he will resurrect every dead dream for you. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll close with this, but a few years ago I was in a, a doctor's office reading like a science magazine or something. And um, I remember reading this story. This 40-year-old this woman was having uh, bypass heart surgery. And she was on the operating table. They just finished sewing her up. And uh, they removed the machine that was pumping, you know, her heart, her blood. Uh, but her heart didn't wake back up. And they did everything they could. They gave her drug after drug. Nothing happened. The surgeon started to massage the heart. Still nothing happened. He was so upset. He thought, man, we've done everything for this woman. And her heart's not beating. So in front of everybody there in the operating room, the doctor leaned over the patient, her name was actually Mary, and he whispered in her ear, he said, Mary, this is your doctor. I've done everything I can do. Now I need you to tell your heart to beat again. He took a step back, and within a few seconds, he heard the ba-bum, 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 and the heart began to beat again. Over the past now eight weeks, I've done everything I can do for you. We've all been through hell and back. We've all had difficult times. We've all had stinky stuff take place. If you do not let go of the past, your heart's never going to beat again. I, I, I think that God is, is whispering to you today, I've done everything I can do for you. Now it's time for you to tell your heart to trust again, to love again, to forgive again, to pray again, to believe you know, some of y'all, before you went through that stuff, man, you had such big belief in life. And then you go through it and think, oh, can it ever happen for me? It's time you tell your heart to believe, to trust, to have faith once again. Isaiah 57, 15, I'll revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite, those who are overcome with sorrow for sin. If you want God to reward, restore, and revive you, you need to be so overcome with a passion for him and a desire to please him that nothing else in life matters but that. And I promise you, I promise you, he'll repay every single negative thing that's happened in your past. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's go to the Lord.